Welcome to PLOSCast, the podcast about science, academia, and the future of scholarship. I'm Elizabeth Siever. My guest today is Michelle Newton. She's a graduate student, soon-to-be professor of social and behavioral sciences at Tilburg University in the Netherlands, and she's one of the creators of StatCheck, a tool that scans research articles for statistical tests to see if they're reported accurately. We talked about the StatCheck tool, as well as bigger issues in psychology research today, including recent efforts to replicate studies, the growing field of meta-research, and how research practices can be improved going forward. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about this tool, StatCheck, that you've built? What is it? What does it do? Yeah, sure. So uh, StatCheck, the the very short way to explain what it is, is to say it's a spell checker for your stats. And the slightly longer way to explain it is it's it's uh, a tool. It's based on R, but it also uh, exists on a website, statcheck.io. So also, if you're not familiar with R, you can use it. And what it does is it it reads scientific articles in psychology mostly, and it searches for a reported statistics. So statistics, what I mean with that is a full null hypothesis significance test. So this is the type of statistics that is very often used in psychology, but also outside of psychology. And these statistical results consist of three parts. Something called a test statistic that says something about how large the difference is in values that you want to know something about. Uh, degrees of freedom that says something about how large your sample size was. And a p-value that uh, roughly says something about the probability that your result is based on coincidence or whether you can generalize it in a nutshell, very roughly. Yeah, psychologists very often focus on this this value because if your p-value is smaller than 0.05, it's usually said that your result is statistically significant. What we find is that sometimes these p-values don't add up uh, with the numbers that are reported alongside to it. So this test statistic and degrees of freedom that are reported next to it, with those two numbers, you can recalculate a p-value. But sometimes it doesn't match with the number that is reported. And StatCheck automatically extracts these statistics, recalculates the p-value, and checks whether the one that is reported is actually also the one that it recalculated based on the other numbers. Oh, and so if the stat that's reported or the p-value that's reported, if stat check finds that it doesn't match what's actually in the paper based on the calculation, what does it do? Um, well, stat check doesn't really do much besides flagging it. So it's really, in that sense, also very, very equivalent to a spell check. It basically puts a red stripe underneath a word if, it, if it's not uh, spelled correctly. Here, stat check will give you an output that says uh, this result is inconsistent. Because StatCheck is an automated procedure, and it's not very smart, all all that it does is just recalculates numbers. Basically, the next step is to look as a human to the paper, like, why is this flag as an inconsistency? Is this really because there's a typo somewhere? Or is there a very good reason that this result is inconsistent? For instance, when authors use a specific type of statistical correction that changed the p-value or the degrees of freedom, which caused this inconsistency, then it's not necessarily wrong. It's just inconsistent, but for a very good reason. So StatCheck is really a tool that you can use as a first step, as a sort of a sanity check. Does everything match up in my paper? So for instance, if you want to submit an article yourself, it's a really good idea to run it through StatCheck uh, to see if there's anything that could possibly be a typo before you submit it. Right. And so I know you've done some research projects using StatCheck on the psychology literature. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what you found when you've run StatCheck on published papers? Yeah. So we we did quite a huge study in that, actually. Um, Not as huge as we wanted. Our initial idea was to document reporting errors in science as a whole. The problem is just that we needed a specific type of reporting style because StatCheck really looks for a specific combination of letters and numbers. And it turned out that APA reporting style is very useful for that. So APA reporting style really says something about the specific way in which a statistical result needs to be reported. And it turns out that almost only psychology journals use it. So that's when we scaled down our research pretty much to psychology. But when I say scaled down, it's in between quotation marks, because in the end, we downloaded over 30,000 papers that we scanned from, I think, eight journals that are considered flagship journals in several subfields of psychology. And we scanned them with StatCheck and it found APA reported results in about 60% of these articles. And then when we checked the inconsistency rates, 
it turned out that about half of the papers were flagged as having at least one inconsistency. And this sounds very dramatic. And yeah, I've seen it in several media outlets uh, reported as half of psychology papers contain mistakes. But it really is not necessarily as bad as that because a lot of these inconsistencies were somewhere in the third decimal that were not consequential at all or could have had a really good reason. That is really not something that we could check at this large scale. So the only thing we could say is half of the papers contain a p-value that doesn't really match up with the test statistic and degrees of freedom. What was more serious, possibly more serious, is that in one in eight papers, we found an inconsistency that could potentially have changed the statistical conclusion. Mm. So that means that the recalculated p-value was not significant, whereas the result was reported as significant, or the other way around. And in these types of inconsistencies, we found that it was more often the case that p-values were wrongly reported as significant than the other way around. So this could indicate some systematic bias to significant results. Ah, right. So maybe getting at like the file drawer effect a little, the tendency for researchers maybe to not write up their experimental results that aren't significant? Yeah, the, the way I, I see it now, because yeah, again, StatCheck really cannot say anything about the reason why sure. these these things happen. So the way I can explain this, this, this finding that we find more mistakes in the direction of finding significant results could be publication bias. So say that researchers make the exact same amount of mistakes in either direction, but only the significant, the results reported as significant get published. Mm. In that sense, you get, of course, a a sort of a disbalance in results that are wrongly reported as significant. Mm. So that's one possible explanation. Another could be some sort of a, a double standard in double checking your results. So, and this is, of course, this is all speculation. Like, Mm -hmm. I just thought about this and and this seemed like something that could possibly have happened. So imagine that you you work very hard on your research. uh, You have a certain hypothesis. You're pretty convinced of this hypothesis and you run the analysis and you don't find a significant effect. Then it's a very logical next step to think about, well, this is not what I expected. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I miscopied something and then you go check your results and it turned out that you did make a mistake and then you fix it Right, right. to rightly correct your p-value again to something significant. But now imagine that it happens the other way around, that you really expect a significant result and you find it, then you don't immediately have a reason to double check your results and maybe you don't. So this is also one mechanism, this double standard in checking your results, why there could be this disbalance. And a third reason, uh, of course, could be that people wrongly round down p-values on purpose. Hmm. And this is something that there has been some empirical data on this by um, a paper by John et al., who surveyed, I think, over a thousand psychologists about questionable research practices. And I think about 20% of their sample admitted to at least once having rounded down a p-value to make it appear significant. But... It is very difficult to say anything about this in the long run. Like these data only indicate something about have you ever in your entire scientific career rounded down a p-value? So it did indicate that sometimes this happens. Sometimes people do this Mm. on purpose, but it's very difficult to say anything about the rate in which this happens in the literature. So it could be a third explanation for this, this disbalance in reporting, wrongly reporting significant results. I wonder if it's possible to maybe sort of have this feeling. I know I've had this feeling because I, I used to do my stats in SPSS, which, <laughs> which has, I mean, which sometimes it felt like this sort of delicate system. And like when I would be able to get a result, I might be like, okay, wow, I've made it work. So I wonder if, if also there might be this feeling of like, I don't want to break it as opposed to, you know, like, you know, like evil cackle, I will stop here. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of the time, I mean, one of the problems is as psychologists, we're very used to doing our own analyses, but we're not statisticians. Like in our undergrad, we had a couple of stats courses. Of course, if you, you go further in, in your scientific career, you'll get some more, but you're not a statistician. So in the end, it's also sort of trying to figure it out along the way and SPSS is notoriously unclear in the way they report results like the degrees of freedom you need for a test are in a different table than the rest of the result and I also I notice it in my own papers if I write a paper with a lot of significance tests in it I always 
always run StatCheck on it myself. And actually, just recently, I fished out three reporting errors in my own paper about reporting errors. So <laughs> it is amazing. really not hard to imagine how easy it is to make these kind of mistakes. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, especially if, if you have to copy and paste or you're typing it in, like if you, you know, like back in the day, I used to have the printed output there and you're trying to key that into Microsoft Word. And this workflow probably sounds really terrifying to people who don't, who didn't use SPSS and weren't in psychology and working in Word. But yeah, it's just, it's so easy to just make a data entry or even. Yeah. So I try to integrate more dynamic reporting tricks in my own work, but I also notice that I, I mean, I don't work in SPSS, I use R, but I also just copy my results to Word, which uh, if probably my colleague Chris hears this, will, he will be very disappointed because there are actually some pretty cool tricks that you can use. For instance, you have these tools such as R Markdown in which you can write a dynamic manuscript. So you write your manuscript in R and you can sort of plant in chunks of code that will report the numbers for you. So if your data changes or your analysis changes, then the output in your paper also changes. So you don't have to go back through your entire paper if you changed one number in a data table because you removed an outlier or something, which is very sensitive for errors. So there are automated ways to sort of avoid these things. Would that be similar to some citation management software where you put in a placeholder for a citation and then it auto-populates the references at the end? Yeah, I think you could compare it with that. Yeah. Just something where you don't have to make sure you get the name exactly right because you're pulling it from a database. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if you if you if you if you're doing your references and you turned out that you uh, misspelled Newton, for instance, <laughs> which happens a lot, um, then at least you have to change it only once and not go through your entire manuscript to change it everywhere. I think this is very similar to what you can do also with your statistical results. That makes a lot of sense. So going a little big picture, how did you have the idea for StatCheck? Was there anything that inspired it, like any specific events? Yeah, in a sense. Um, it started actually quite some time ago. I think, yeah, I guess the idea started six or seven years ago. I was doing my master's at the University of Amsterdam, and I was really was not very much involved with uh, the whole meta science thing yet. I was just uh, following my courses, uh, minding my own business. And it started in, in the Department of Methodology of Psychology that my supervisor, my current supervisor, Jelte Wichertz, and his then PhD student, uh, Marianne Bakker, were, were looking into data sharing and uh, other issues related to meta science. And they noticed that in some high profile papers, there were some of these reporting inconsistencies and they just thought that that was really weird because if you think about it a reporting inconsistency in a published paper is just out there anyone can recalculate it anyone can see it so it's a pretty obvious error so to speak so they were sort of surprised that no one had noticed it Mm -hmm. so it didn't get picked up in the review system it just went unnoticed whereas it was out there for everyone to see so they thought well how often if it happens in such a high profile paper how often does this happen in the literature So they started out by hand coding a batch of articles to see what the prevalence of reporting errors was. So I think in the end, I think there's their sample of their paper was about 50 articles or something with 1200 p-values. And it's, it's just really a lot of work. It's pretty tedious and quite error prone, I would say, because you're, yeah, you're, you're sifting through these articles and you're, you're, yeah, yeah, you're doing everything by hand. So then you had Sasha Epscomp, my sort of, colleague between quotation marks. He was also doing a master's at the University of Amsterdam and he was really programming savvy. He really liked R. I think in his free time he once programmed a karaoke machine in R. <laughs> like that that kind of stuff. So he, he saw this and he thought, well, this is useless and we can automate this. This is a super simple procedure. Let's try to scrape these, these statistics and recalculate it automatically. So he built the basic framework of StatCheck. And then I sort of saw what he was doing and it looked interesting and I wanted to learn to program in R a little bit more. So he gave me like a a tiny uh, assignment in it. So I think I created the plot function, which is already discarded because it was so ugly. And then I started working on it more and more and I got really interested. And at that point, we also saw that if we wanted to make a really good tool, we really needed to go and sit down and really make sure that the tests it scraped uh, were really the right ones and the calculations were right because... Programming the general framework was initially pretty straightforward, but fine-tuning it into a level that we thought we can present this to the world took another four years, I think. So that's uh, when I took up the maintenance of the package, then tried to fine-grain it, make it make it more detailed, make it more specific, 
and trying to make all these uh, things around it that we have now. So we have a, a manual with all the screenshots. We have a web app now, thanks to Sean Rife, by the way. Mm. So it, the idea started out pretty quickly, mainly out of out of the idea of we need to make this more simple for ourselves. And it just evolved in something that is also just very useful for researchers themselves. So have you um, have you heard from researchers who've used the tool? Have they, you know, given you testimony about how it's helped them in, in some way? Yeah, I, I see the funniest things on on Twitter. I think <laughs> the moment we launched a web app, someone said that uh, she she checked the manuscript while brushing her teeth on her phone, <laughs> and it it was just really nice to hear that people thought it was useful and also to to see that it was actually as simple as we hoped it would be. And I, yeah, I, I get these regular updates from people who say, oh, this is actually really useful. I could check my res- my manuscript before submitting it, fished out a couple of errors before submitting it, which is, of course, always nice. If you're an author, then you really want to fish out these mistakes before you submit it right. to avoid any corrections. Yes. God forbid. <laughs> yeah. The sooner, the sooner, the better. Absolutely. So right now, what, how would you characterize your research program at Tilburg? Like, what is your field of, of research? The field of research is actually quite broad. I would I would define it as meta science, so science about science. I'm I'm still hoping for the day that we're gonna have meta meta science. Yes. Um, I actually also really want to do a meta 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 analysis <laughs> just for the sake of it. Um, but meta science really encompasses a, a lot of topics. So the things I've worked on are things studies about publication bias, studies about replication studies, what they mean and when they can be useful if you consider that actually the literature is tainted by publication bias. Mm-hmm. These reporting errors are a large part of my research. In my, my research group, uh, metaresearch.nl, is um, I think we consist of nine people now, and we all are focused on, on different aspects of this. So we have research about detecting fraud, for instance, but also research about why scientists behave in the way they do, and research about the publication process. So there's really a lot that comes into play in this field, which is also one of the reasons why I like it so much. Do your colleagues in the field have a similar background, or are they from other research areas? Psychology, to me, seems like a very obvious one to go meta from, but I'm biased since I'm from psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're all from social sciences, Mm -hmm. Uh, so most of us are uh, with a background in psychology, but there's also uh, someone from organization studies and sociology. But most of the work we do pertains to psychology in specific, and sometimes we can draw conclusions about social sciences in general. But we, at this point, we don't really expand much outside of psychology. So that is also one of the reasons I'm, I'm currently visiting um, Metrics at Stanford University, the, the group of uh, John Ioannidis and Steve Goodman, who also installed a meta-research center. But they are from a more biomedical background, and it's actually really interesting to see what meta-researchers from other fields are doing, because sometimes the problems in different fields are really different. Do you find that in general for meta-researchers, they're studying the field that they might have come from? Yeah, that is the general feeling I have. And it's also uh, when I try to venture outside my field, I walk into a lot of barriers because there's a lot of implicit knowledge in a field. For instance, what does the author order mean? on an article in psychology, I know what it means, but I know that in economics, it means something else, but I'm really not sure what it means in biomedical research. And if it's normal to have single author papers or multiple author papers, there are certain fields that, that widely use a specific type of statistical correction that is never used in a different field. And all these things matter for how you interpret the data that you collect from a certain field or the patterns that you try to see. So I really do think that it's that it's wise that if you try to venture outside your field, that you really try to include someone who is in that field that can warn you for pitfalls that you are not aware of. And uh, with working with the people at Metric at Stanford, have there been any concerns they brought up about biomedical research that you hadn't thought of for psychology? Are there like specific examples? Not really immediately. The things that, that I mainly find if I if I venture outside my own field, and even if I if I talk about uh, problems in psychology, but for different subfields in psychology, is that some problems are really just not an issue. My colleague at Metrics, Tom Hardwick, said something about how he was explaining pre-registration to clinicians, and they were just looking at him like, what do you mean pre-registration? <laughs> do you mean a registered trial? What is what is this thing? And you just easily become lost in translation here, I think. In, in sociology, for instance, 
they have really large data sets that they work with. So power is really not an issue there. But maybe there a bigger issue could be harking, so hypothesizing after the results are known. And biomedical research, I'm not really sure if there are very clear differences in the type of, of problems that arise. I just think it might differ a lot in the type of consequence these problems have. So mm-hmm. maybe that's also my my naive interpretation of biomedical research. But I, I do have the feeling that if it turns out that there is a lot of evidence for questionable research practices in the field as serious as, as life-threatening diseases, then that seems to me as a very serious problem. But of course, yeah, these type of large-scale questionable and replication problems in science as a whole are problematic, I would say. Yeah, just I know recently there's just been a lot more focus on psychologies specifically. Do you do you have a sense of why in the news media they've talked more about the, what do they call it, the replication crisis in psychology? How did it kind of become a bigger thing? Yeah, that's a good question. There, there are a couple of theories about it. There are actually a couple of starting points that you that you could point out. I think it, this whole crisis thing started to get traction in, I think, about 2011, 2012. Well, one of the main things that happened was the fraud case by uh, Diederik Stapel, who's actually from my university. Oh, um, and uh, another thing that happened was the paper by Simonson, Nelson and Simmons, or Simmons, Nelson, Simonson, I never know what the order <laughs> is, but in which they show that if you analyze your results in a certain way that you can prove almost anything. Mm. And the third thing was a paper that got published that proved that we could see into the future. And that also sort of illustrated that there's probably something wrong with the way we analyze data, because this is kind of an unbelievable finding. And then from there, I think people started to get more and more critical about things that got published and about they became more aware of the, the way that you analyze things really makes a difference for what type of conclusion you draw. There were a couple of people who tried to replicate certain findings and it just didn't work out. And I think all these signs pointed towards uh, that, we, yeah, that we needed more rigor in the way we do our science that sort of ended up in, in this thing they call the replication crisis. <laughs> right, which I remember thinking, that sounds incredibly dire. So what do you think are some ways that psychology or other fields could get better about these these research practices? Is there anything that comes to mind that would be better techniques or stats even to, to adopt? I think in the, in terms of what a practical solution could be to, to make our field better and other fields as well, because this is definitely not only a, a problem in psychology, it's just mainly discussed in psychology. I think it's just openness, because I think with the type of data we work and the, the type of analysis, I mean, there are so many analyses possible in a, in a single study that are all defendable that I think it's mainly very important that you are very transparent about why you chose certain analyses, why you did not choose other analyses, and which one you've tried. I think it's not possible to to have people choose the correct analysis and, and prescribe rules in how they should analyze their data or say something about you can never delete outliers in your data because very often that is really warranted. Mm-hmm. But what you could do is enforce people putting their data online, putting their analysis scripts online to make sure that other people can verify their results or when they disagree with the type of analysis, run another type of analysis and see whether the conclusion holds up. So I think openness is really the easiest solution to a lot of the problems we are facing right now. Yeah, and I know that for StatCheck, you can even parse PDFs, right, of articles to extract the stats. And I think of PDFs as being, you know, not necessarily the most transparent way of of storing information, right, in an article. Can you imagine in an ideal world, what would make a tool like StatCheck easier? Could papers be written in a different format, like either in a style for how they'd report stats? Like, could there be something where it would be easier to flag for anybody who's, say, text mining or data mining in that way? Well, for StatCheck specifically, the thing I would definitely say is report everything in APA style, Hmm. because then StatCheck can detect it. What I also notice is that uh, it is much easier to read the text in an HTML file than in a PDF file, because mm-hmm. sometimes in typesetting, strange things happen in PDFs where, for instance, an equal sign gets replaced by a picture of an equal sign, which makes text mining oh. impossible. Oh my gosh. Um, 
But I, I think there is also maybe a future for people who just really submit these interactive documents that I, I just talked about, like these R Markdown files or other files wherein you, where you can just sort of adapt things or maybe even as a reader try to try out different analyses. I mean, it's not impossible, it's just not very feasible right now, I think. But I think this is definitely something in the future that maybe you could sort of attach a data set to an article and let people just play around with it while they're reading the article. I think that would already make a huge difference about how we interpret certain results. Do you know, um, you know, with things like the New York Times and other online media outlets, some of them have rolled out interactive graphics mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And I've sort of felt like when I've when I've played with them, sometimes it can be really cool and interesting. Like if you're looking at, I feel like there's one where it was like climate data or something. But then I also sort of had a sense of how do I know how to look at this to get the best insights or the most helpful insights? Because I feel like especially with graphs, you know, if you're generating a graph mm-hmm. on the fly, there's a lot of ways, like depending, like say the y-axis, right? You could make something look like it's either a huge effect or not that big of a, yeah. an effect, right? Yeah, and that's also what I think you can do with stats right now. I mean, it's very easy to to pick out the test that gives you the best result. I also think that it is insightful to have authors pick a certain statistical test because in the end i mean we also need the authors to say something sensible about the data they collected it's not enough for the authors to just collect data put it online without any narrative about it because these are the people who know their field they know the literature they write an introduction they explain to you why things are relevant and they can also make an informed choice i hope about the type of test they want to run and the type of questions they want to ask so What I would like to see is also first the document that the authors thought was the best way to describe their results and the best way to run the analyses with or without outliers, with or without non-parametric tests, you name it. But to offer the possibility for interested readers or skeptical readers to change their decisions. So again, I I know the words replication crisis are loaded, but how much of something like that do you think is really exposing an underlying problem or just being willing to self-examine so that you find a problem like if there's problems you know say in psychology with with stats reporting is this something that all fields suffer from but just psychs the one who's like reflective enough to actually be working on this yeah Um, i see what you mean yeah so what makes psychology so special basically (laughs) um I think it's a bit of both. I think psychology is also the, one of the reasons that we have these problems in our field, I think is also because psychology is just extremely difficult. I mean, we're trying to explain the human mind in, in lawful rules, in, in, in general behavior. And that is really complicated. So I think that, and, and, and human behavior is a very fragile thing. Like very often, very minor contextual influences can change and affect completely. So that really makes it difficult to run a reliable study, especially with the sample sizes that are often used in psychology. So that is, that is one of the reasons I think that these problems are big in psychology. I think it's also a problem, uh, or not really a problem, it's actually the fact that, that people are focusing on this and trying to solve this, that there's a lot of attention drawn to these problems, because I really wonder what the the level of replication would be, the number of errors, just basically everything we've, we've uh, investigated in psychology, what they would be in maybe the biomedical sciences, economics, you name it. I think every field that uses statistics and tries to explain or tries to find a signal in the noise is just susceptible to these type of problems. So I think that psychology might be a little bit more sensitive to these issues, but also more self-critical. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what area of psychology did you study before going to more meta-research? I very quickly started to study uh, methodology. So they have this uh, really nice program in Amsterdam where you can already, like in in Holland, we have this bachelor master structure, like the first three years of your study is a bachelor's and then you have one or two years which you can do a master's degree. And in our third year in the bachelor's, we could specialize into a certain direction. And 
usually universities offer, offer directions such as clinical psychology, social psychology, developmental, etc. But we also had the opportunity to re- really early onwards choose for methodology and statistics, which as you can imagine was not the most popular track <laughs> in the study. I think in my year we were with five people, <laughs> but I think they have exponentially grown over the years. So it's, it's interesting to see how much the interest in methodology and statistics within psychology is also growing. So no, very early onwards, I already trained in uh, in methodology and stats and in social sciences. That's very cool. I'm glad to hear that it's becoming more popular. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, it's not because that is the way I used to frame it to my students, that it would be really important for them, even if they only wanted to be applied psychologists. It's just important that you understand how to read a research paper. But every time I started this story, I would just see them zoom out on me, sort of like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? <laughs> This seems like the same talk as my calculus teacher would give me in high school. Like, you, you will need this in daily life. Um, but now I'm teaching a methods course and I have the feeling that I think if you just present it as a field instead of as a tool that they can use, then it's already much more interesting. And especially with this replication crisis going on at this point, it really illustrates how important it is that you understand with what methods you investigated something. So I think the whole training as a psychologist has changed because of this replication crisis, at least at Tilburg University. I talked to some professors in in social psychology and they say, yeah, I've had to change my entire undergrad course because at first it was sort of showing them all the fun effects that we found and now it's questioning all the fun effects that we found. And I think that as a student, that is much more interesting because then you really learn how to look at studies with a critical eye and you really start to think about methods and how important that is and not only finding a fun effect, but really scrutinizing everything. And I think in the end, that will really benefit our field. Oh, absolutely. Those sorts of skills are invaluable. I mean, just in the most abstract sense, that kind of critical thinking is so important, right? To be, You have evidence in front of you, you have data, but what do you think about it? And author testimony is one aspect of it. But Yeah. No, um, I said it makes it much more than just filling out numbers in SPSS and trying to remember what a p-value meant. Right, which just feels kind of disconnected. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that is maybe one of the good things that the... <laughs> well, actually, I think there are a lot of good things that came from this replication crisis. I mean, we're all thinking way more about the quality of our research methods but also i think that it's yeah it's just really good for students to to think about this in such a way and it makes the whole thing be much more interesting for them have you found i guess either like undergrads or master students do, have they changed over time and the kinds of things that they know before they begin the program or or do they question things more than they used to you know, like with the findings it's hard to say, actually. Sometimes I uh, I teach workshops about what questionable research practices are for master students. And I used to begin that with a slide with Diederik Stapel on it to sort of also explain that fraud is not the same as questionable research practices. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of started with this rhetoric question, like, well, you probably know who this is. And last year, I actually had half the group looking at me like, I have no idea. So <laughs> then I was really sort of surprised that this died out so quickly that they yeah, it was in their basically in their own university where this happened. But apparently, this doesn't live very long, or it's it doesn't. Yeah, of course, they they were probably not even studying when this happened. So yeah, it's just very easy to sort of miss this, I guess. Oh yeah, but it's 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 hard to say whether they're more critical. I also think, I mean. Psychology is just also, I, I loved my, my undergrad. I thought that all these, because I learned it in the way that like, this is a fun effect and this is a fun effect. And I also, I thought they, they were really cool things that they investigated. I mean, explaining human behavior is extremely interesting. So I think at that point, if I just speak from my own experience, I didn't really want to be super critical about it because it all sounded very logical and it made a lot of sense and you're not very much trained in critical thinking yet because you just started. So I remember from from when I started that I didn't really question a lot of things at first, but it's I, I'm not really sure how they think about it now. Mm. I, I do notice that when I teach that they question me a lot <laughs> but th- I, I try to encourage this because it's, it's actually a lot of fun if, if they and actually also the point that I'm trying to get across like if someone says something don't take it at face value right so then there's always one who asks me so why should we take you at face value <laughs> said you don't have to you just have to be quiet during the lecture <laughs> So that's interesting. So it sounds like this case, which I didn't realize was at the same university, really had a large impact on the department at Tilburg. 
Yeah, that's that's sort of what I thought at first because my supervisor started his job in Tilburg very close to this this incident. So at first I just sort of assumed that it was because of this incident that they tried to hire more meta researchers, but it turned out that it was in the other order. So they already started to think about research methods and they thought it was interesting to hire someone who was working on improving research methods before this whole thing happened. So that to me was a really good sign that they are very... <laughs> Uh, they they care a lot about how how we go around do research. That's good. So you had mentioned before um, the difference between a fraud and questionable research practices. Could you talk a little bit about what are questionable research practices? Like, what is that category of thing, and what are some other examples other than the stats? I sort of tried to define it because I couldn't really find a good definition in the literature. But the way I chose to define it now is as statistical and methodological decisions that you make that shift your result into the desired direction. And very important, you don't talk about this. Mm. So you don't report this. because and, and my favorite example is if Diederik Stapel would have written in this method section, well, the way I collected this data was by writing it up at my kitchen table, <laughs> then it would not have been fraud. It would also not have been published. But <laughs> um, that is really a description of what's going on. And that's just an extreme example to sort of illustrate that this not saying which decisions you made really is a key aspect of what a questionable research practice is. Because a lot of these statistical behaviors, so for instance, the removal of outliers can be very much justified in a lot of situations. So, well, that's one example, actually. Yeah, removing outliers until your effect becomes significant, usually. Another thing is to run a whole bunch of different experiments and only report the ones that showed the result that you wanted to show. Or at a smaller scale, measure a lot of variables, but only include the ones that showed an effect in your final study. So a lot about selective reporting. There are also just some statistical tricks or statistical artifacts that people are sometimes not even aware of. For instance, if you run a study with, uh, say, 40 participants and you don't find anything, and then you suddenly remembered that there was such a thing as power and you needed a lot of participants and you just run 10 more and you still don't find it and you run 10 more again and then you find it. That is a questionable research practice because with this strategy, you're guaranteed, even if there is zero effect in the population, you're guaranteed to find a significant effect at some point. But people often don't realize this. And I also notice that I always have a hard time explaining this phenomenon to applied researchers because it's actually quite complicated why that is the case. And that's also why I think that questionable research practices, the term always sounds a little bit accusing researchers. Whereas I think a lot of these things, I remember sometimes I, I explain these types of behaviors that can result in, in unwanted conclusions. And sometimes people are looking at me like, but why can't you do that? Like they're genuinely sort of shocked that they apparently engaged in some questionable research practices without realizing it. So it's really just, it says something about the flexibility that we have in our methods and in our stats that really can force you to draw the wrong conclusion. Yeah, that makes it really easy. Would you say that in, intention would be one of the big differences between fraud and questionable research practices? Yeah, definitely. Fraud is, I think, in the intentional fabrication or falsification of, of data. And that is also one of the reasons why I always stress that it's really important that you cannot detect fraud with stat check, for instance, because I have the feeling that sometimes that is what people want hmm. to be able to conclude, like if StatCheck flagged something as an inconsistency, they often want to sort of say, well, you did it wrong. And especially if they started out by scanning the paper because they didn't believe a finding or something. But if you want to say something about intention, it is almost impossible. I think Diederik Stapel confessed to what he did, which was why it was easy to sort of close this case. But I, I don't know of a lot of other fraud cases in which the person who was accused actually admitted. And then the mm. only thing you can conclude, and I think in the end also the most important thing for, for the scientific community, is that you can conclude that the data in such papers that are very suspicious are of such low quality or so to s- such a large extent I, impossible <laughs> that you cannot trust these results anymore. But that doesn't say anything about the person. And I think in the end, that is also the, the way we want to go. You want to make, you want to draw conclusions about data, about conclusions, about science, not necessarily about the person behind it. 
Right, because that that is a lot harder, and it does it doesn't have to be ad hominem. No, mm. and it's also kind of yeah, but maybe it's not useless. But to my in my experience, it is kind of useless because <laughs> then you end up in a legal fight, or then you maybe at some point this person will admit, and then what? Then you have a person who admitted it. The only thing is that you then maybe have extra reason to scrutinize the rest of the work of that person, but you can also just scrutinize all work. I don't know. I have, a, I have a feeling that a lot of these things, if people scrutinize paper, that very often it becomes very personal. So either the people who are scrutinizing a paper make it very personal, or the people who are being scrutinized take it very personally. Whereas in the end, it's all about the quality of research. That is the thing that is most important that we want to say something about. So it would be great if everyone could stop taking it so personal and stop making it so personal. <laughs> right, which is, of course, easier said than done. I guess so, yeah. I'm thinking also, you know, for the kinds of theories in the literature where they're named after a person. I mean... <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, yeah, that's sort of personal. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so much that we... There's so many practices that researchers engage in that kind of tie your, like, self-worth, right, to your to your work so directly. Like, yeah. Like, in that sense, I'm sort of... I sort of understand why people take it personally, because that's that's how you're taught about it, right? Yeah, and I know... I understand the feeling as well. I mean, when the, the paper uh, with the stat check results came out, there were a couple of people quite critical... And when you receive an email with someone who is directly criticizing your work and doubting the conclusions, it's really difficult because this is a paper I worked on for, I think the paper itself, maybe two years or something. It's like a really long time and I put my heart and soul in it. And I, I was really, yeah, it was my baby at that <laughs> point. Right, right. So when someone criticizes that, it's really difficult to not take it personal. I agree with that. So what I try to do is not reply immediately. <laughs> right, right. So really sort of try to to let the in, in initial emotion of rejection and sort of, yeah, I, and, and try to not feel offended or let it slide. And then the moment where you think, okay, I can, I can think more objectively about it, really try to value this person's argument because very often they make good points and there are definitely flaws in a paper. And in this case, I'm also working on uh, an extra sort of mini paper to to discuss what effects corrected p-values have on our general estimates of, of uh, prevalence of inconsistencies. Because if it turns out that 100% of our flagged inconsistencies are due to the use of uh, corrections and adjustments, then we would still technically be correct, but it would be a whole different conclusion, of course. Well, I can already tell you from preliminary results that that is not the case. But it was a comment that was definitely warranted and worth looking into. So I'm really trying to take the high road with these kind of things and yeah, setting an example for, for other people. But it can, be, it can be pretty hard. So I understand why people take it personal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with some of the work that I did, I'm just always thinking about kind of situational or environmental factors that affect people's behavior or like why we do things. And I think it's rarely is ever are things just purely finger pointing at a person, right? Yeah. There's usually the incentive structure, right? Yeah. Of like the field or um, the way they were trained. I mean, there's so there's so many things that can be going on. Yeah, so that's also one of the reasons why I think it would be great if we could all be more open and transparent about our choices and also about the mistakes that we made. Because at this point, we're at a, we're at a stage of, of self-criticism as a field and criticism of others. And I have a feeling that people are, are becoming very afraid that someone will point out a mistake in their paper because they sort of equate it with being accused of fraud. Right. Whereas... We all make mistakes in our papers. I, I'm sh I, I mean, in my papers, I use huge files of R code that do all my analyses. I mean, if I would be the only person looking at that, for instance, I would be sure that there would be some mistake in there somewhere. So we try to sort of catch that by having other people look at it. But I think the best way is to just put it online so that other people can check it and then try to be open about uh, when... There was indeed a mistake in it because in the end, for instance, my colleague Chris Hartgerink published a lot of stat check reports online on Papier, out in the open. And some of the replies, the replies that we received varied quite widely, but some of the nicest ones were, oh my God, you flagged an error in my paper. I checked it. You were right. It was an error. I'm going to uh, correct it immediately and write a letter to the editor. There are several people who responded like that and often on social media, like on Twitter, for instance. Mm. And you could see that the, the community really responded very positively 
to that. Of course, I, the the people I follow on my Twitter are not really a random sample of scientists, but right. that sort of made me feel all right. It's it's also being rewarded to be open about the mistakes you made, and I think if everyone would do that, then there would be less reason to hide several choices that people make. Yeah, so then it's not like scrutiny is the end of the world. It's just correcting the record. It's making everything better, right? Yeah. So can I just throw out a really crazy hypothesis? <laughs> <laughs> Do your worst. <laughs> I'm also wondering, because again, I'm thinking about like, you know, the scientific article as being, you know, this canonical like item of output of a research program. Do you think... Um, there's any way that kind of the way that we write articles and especially the emphasis on, you know, just what are considered good writing practices, like mm-hmm. a good narrative structure and format. Are there any things that make an article read better, but that actually might make stats reporting worse? And I guess I'm thinking about how, you know, when I was, you know, an undergrad and of course I was you know just learning how this stuff worked. But I remember like for one of the first papers I wrote, I, my results section was basically just like this data dump of all of the stats. And it was like, well, no, you have to make it flow and and yeah. just you know you have to pick which ones are important but i wonder you know like if you're if you need to have make it have the same narrative flow as like an intro or conclusion or, or along those lines is that first of all i think it'd be harder to parse yeah like machine machine readability but then maybe also do you think there could be a trade-off between readability and reproducibility for example yeah well i think it's a very important point and especially there's there's a lot of discussion going on about how much implicit knowledge is allowed in a paper because some people whose experiments have been replicated say, well, you didn't take this and this and this into account. And then the replicators say, well, you didn't write it in your paper. So we thought it couldn't be important or it shouldn't be important because if it was, then you should have written it in your paper. (laughs) And I think both sides here have a point because maybe it is possible to write down every single detail that you did, but it's really like in a research article, you also at some point want to get to the point because no one has time to read an entire lab notebook if you just want to sort of know in general what people did. Right. I think I think the solution here lies in writing an article with a nice narrative because as I said, I think it's very interesting to see what the authors who are experts in this field thought about it. Because I am very often, the papers I read, I am very often not an expert in that field. So it's also very hard for me to judge which parts of information are important and which are not. However, I do think it's important that you have maybe a supplemental section, an appendix online or in the journal, where you do write everything down in detail. For instance, I'm trying to reproduce some analyses from the metrics team at at Stanford, and they have a paper in PNAS where the paper itself is very concise and very to the point. And for me to be able to to replicate their analysis, basically, I just had to go to a different document, which is very important for me because I need to try to replicate as closely as possible what they did, but is not necessarily very informative for someone who just wants to know what they did and what they found in general. Hmm. That makes sense. Just like how how in depth do you need to know? Is it like you need an elevator pitch or do you need to you know evaluate this something more akin to peer review, right? Where you need yeah. to be looking at it more deeply. I do like to sometimes have a component about careers in general. Yeah. So I'm wondering for researchers who might be interested in getting more involved in meta research, do you have any tips for getting into your field or anything like that you'd recommend about it that you think of as being sort of particularly exciting or interesting? Definitely. I mean, if you're interested in this field, there is a lot to do. So the best part of this field is that there is a, there are a lot of gaps in the literature because now we're at the point that we also have to approach meta science in a scientific way. So we cannot we have to practice what we preach. I mean, so we're we're trying to collect empirical evidence about what we think are risk factors to the quality of research because yeah, we can speculate about it, but in the end, it's an empirical question. So That is one thing, like there is enough to do. There is a lot of work to find out more about the content and the people who are working in it and possible directions you could go in. One of the things that is really fun and coming up is a conference, the SIPS conference. Then SIPS stands for the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. And it's going to be held at the end of July in Virginia together with the Center for Open Science. And uh, I don't don't know the exact dates by heart, but if you go to uh, improvingpsych.org, is it, I think? And we can include the we link in the to, show notes. Yes, so, let's, yeah. let's include the link. Uh, so <laughs> that, <laughs> I don't know the, uh, the link of my own organization. That's always great. <laughs> and 
but this this conference is really focused on action. So it won't be your standard conference with a lot of presentations and panel discussions, but it will be very hands-on and everybody is welcome. Actually, we really encourage a lot of diversity because we are not aware of all the problems in every field and maybe the things that, that we as meta researchers consider problems or not problems at all or the other way around. Maybe we just miss a huge problem because we're not aware of it. So there, there's going to be hackathons, there's going to be workshops on how to use R or Bayesian statistics, for instance. We will set up unconference topics, so just topics that we on the fly think are interesting and useful. And we'll try to set up meetings with that. And you'll just meet a lot of people in psychology that are interested in this and in very different skills with from, from very different backgrounds. So that's definitely one thing to check out. Um, another thing, uh, you could always keep an eye on the website of our research group, MetaResearch.nl, to just see what types of, of research we're producing to get an idea of what exists in this field. Another thing that you could do is uh, check out several Facebook groups. There's a lot of discussion going on on Facebook. One of the, um, the examples of, of these groups is PsychMap. I think we can also put a link uh, to that probably. Where there's a lot of, there you really get a feel of what's going on in the field and a lot of discussions between both meta-researchers and people from the field who often have very interesting discussions about how to approach problems. So there's a lot of discussion about how critique should be delivered. Like, is it important that you be aware, that you're aware of your tone when you deliver critique to make mm -hmm. it maybe less personal? And some people argue, well, it's only about the content and, and people shouldn't be so touchy. And other people say, well, this is just bullying. And it's, it's very interesting because there are a lot of different viewpoints there. So that's just a handful of things uh, to check out. And from there, there's tons of other directions uh, you could go in. Great. And people can probably also follow you on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just also put the, the, the name somewhere online because I have this impossible <laughs> last name that for anyone not Dutch is just like a horror. <laughs> so it's, it's just at Michelle Nuiten, but well, we'll write that down. Probably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And last but not least for stat check for your, your research, is there anything that you wish I had asked about that, that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? I think we, we covered a lot. I, I just mm -hmm. really would like to stress that I am overall very positive about uh, the direction in which we are going. And I think uh, we're, we're kicking up a lot of dust right now. And, and it, sometimes it seems as if everything is wrong because that's always in the news. But I think in the end, we will come out stronger as a field. And I am very positive that we're just going in the direction of more solid research. And I'm very excited about that. Absolutely. It's been so great talking with you, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really great. Again, my guest today has been Michelle Newton, a graduate student, soon to be professor of social and behavioral sciences at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. Be sure to check out StatCheck's website, statcheck.io where you can upload the paper directly and get back your stats results in seconds. I ran my own first article that I ever published through StatCheck, and luckily all of my stats checked out. Have you been enjoying PLOSCast? Review us on iTunes, and you could have a chance to win some free PLOS swag. To be qualified for a raffle prize this month, after you write your review, send us an email at PLOSCast at PLOS.org with your iTunes display name, your name, and phone number. And that swag could be yours. We'd love to hear from you. PLOSCast is brought to you by PLOS, the Public Library of Science, a nonprofit open access publisher dedicated to transforming how research is communicated. This show is produced by Tessa Gregory and Jen Lalou and edited by Will Jackson. I'm your host, Elizabeth Siever, and you can find me at TweeTotaler on Twitter. Thanks for listening.